Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Hey, you're listening to The Next Track podcast, and thanks for doing that. We're glad to have you with us. Before I forget, if you have a suggestion for a show topic, something you want us to look into, seek a guest for, what have you, let us know by using the contact form at our website, thenexttrack.com. Today we're going to be chatting a little about the old hi-fi set up with our good friend from computeraudiofile.com, Chris Conacher. Chris, good to see you. How's it going? Ah, it's going great. It's good to be back, guys, after the Independence Day holiday last week. It's good to be back in. Chris, we wanted to get you on the show today to discuss audio equipment, stereos and speakers and cables and all that. Doug and I were chatting last week, and we were thinking about how neither of us, as much as we love music, neither of us have that itch to buy new audio equipment, to get a different amplifier, a better amplifier, or better speakers or anything like that. But not only that, we don't have any itch to get other elements to put in this audio chain. And and we were thinking that this is really a distinction between the way people listen to music, that some people have a very simple audio system and they're happy, and yet other people have a system with 5, 10, 15 different devices in a chain to make their sound come out of the speakers. And they're never happy. <laughs> and they're not necessarily happy. Now, we, we record with video on just so we can see each other. And I'm looking behind Chris and I see one, two, three, four, five, six boxes on the floor all seem to be connected and then speakers. Are all those devices part of your audio chain in that room? Uh, let's see. There's a couple of DACs. So two of those pieces are redundant. Okay. So you've got four pieces plus speakers. Well, yes, and then there's some other stuff off to the side you can't see. <laughs> right. So in that audio chain, can, can you just describe for us what each device is and what it does? Sure, sure. So there's a DCS network bridge, and that takes the audio in via Ethernet and outputs via this one I have outputting via AES, EBU, into the Macintosh DAC. And then that is converting, obviously, digital to analog into a Constellation Audio preamplifier, and then that preamplifier goes out to the amplifiers and then to the speakers. So you've got one device to collect the data, another to convert it, another to boost it partway, and another to boost it all the way for your speakers. Yes. Now, it it's fair to say that a lot of people use DACs. Does your DAC not have an Ethernet input? Is that why you're using this network bridge? Correct. The DAC okay. doesn't have Ethernet input. It's got USB and AES and all kinds of stuff like that. Right. And, you know, they do different things here and there. And the DAC does have volume control inside, so I could connect it directly to the amps. But if I have other sources I want to compare it with, connecting it to the preamp makes it very easy. And it's true that you're often comparing different components, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If I want to switch between A and B, it's kind of a hassle to get off my chair and unplug components. And so, yeah, preamp makes that very nice. Well, I've always wondered about preamps. Other than this usage, why would anyone need a preamp? A lot of people use them because they are, okay, they give a better sound for some people between the DAC and the power amplifiers. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. If it sounds worse, you take it out. So people will put it in because it's a better match between the amplifier and the DAC. If the DAC can't drive the amplifiers correctly, then there's likely a preamp from the amplifier manufacturer that will work much better. So in my case, for some DACs, that works great. Other DACs, they go direct to the amplifiers, and I'm off and running. 
So you have the kind of amplifier that doesn't have a built-in preamp. When it does, it's called an integrated amplifier. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. And why in particular do you not have an integrated amplifier? Is your amplifier better the way it's set up? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I like to think, yes, it is. But also, the integrated amplifier, if you want to upgrade one component of that, you're kind of, you, you bought all into one, right? So a lot of integrated have a digital input. So if I want to... If that, say, the digital input doesn't support, say, I was into MQA or DSD, then I got to get rid of the whole integrated. So this way, it's kind of split out, and just the nature of my work, it makes it the best choice. Right. But for a lot of people, the integrated all-in-ones are awesome. Yeah, they are. I, I've never owned a preamp, and I always thought that preamps were more useful when you're playing music off a turntable. Well, that's true. If you have a turntable, then the preamp, whether it's part of an integrated system or a separate uh, that's something that you'd be particular about. Oh, yeah. Because amplifier, some amplifiers come with what's called a phono stage, which does the necessary amplification from the, the low output turntable into the amplifier section. But uh, I, I had always heard that the preamp was a lot better for that sort of sound, I guess, because the turntable output is so low. Yeah, that can get very expensive very quickly when you want to, you know, take the output from a turntable and make really, really good sound. Oh my gosh, that's that's an expensive endeavor, um, but they do make a humongous difference. It's all okay. analog. So we were sort of conducting a thought experiment. How many components can you have in an audio chain if you really want to have as many components as possible? So here's the thing. Audio can be a hobbyist sport in a way, that people get into the gear as much as the music and sometimes even more. And as such, they want to keep adding things and trying new things and you know, spending money. So can you give us an example of the ultimate elaborate audio chain from the power supply to your ears? Okay, I can try. And I'll poke fun at myself for a little bit of this as well. And each one of these items could actually be expanded on. But so I go, go back further from the audio system. I have a special ground rod outside my house into the earth. So everything's got to be grounded appropriately. Does this prevent the hum that you get from a ground loop? Uh, it can, but okay. I just wanted to make sure that everything is grounded properly. So we moved into our house 10 years ago, and it was built in 1941. Okay. And our electrician said, you probably got ground wires hopping over different yeah. you know, pipes so, here So that's there. more for security than the audio quality, isn't it? Well... It's more for audio quality. But it also helps ensure that your devices don't go boom. Yeah, yes, exactly. Okay. It was a good thing. So, so then I go into my – I have a dedicated sub-panel off the main power panel. So I have – I think there's five different 20-amp circuit breakers in there that only my audio system goes to. Wow, that's pretty cool. Is that um, is that unusual? So this this isn't actually not too far out there. I know a lot of guys who do this. I'll just interject, and, and I'll put a link in the show notes. There was an article, I think, in the New York Times last year about a Japanese guy who had his own utility pole set up with a transformer. Right. So he beats you on that. Oh, totally beat me. <laughs> I wish I had the money to do a, a custom room that sits on different uh, types of gravel. I visited one of those once, and it's incredible. But, okay. Uh, so then, you know, from the custom sub-panel, you go to your special power outlets. You can't have a normal outlet, of course. And there's even the special outlet covers. Um, and then a custom audio file power cord going into a power conditioner. 
And we haven't even got to any component that makes noise yet. Yeah, we're still just with the electricity here. Yes, yes. But electricity is very important, right? Of course. So the power conditioner, this is something that sort of cleans up the power supply and makes it stable and smooth and all that, right? Yeah, there's all, and there's all kinds of these too. You know, there's like conditioners, stabilizers, filters, you name it. There's all kinds of them. Some of them make it sound worse. Some of them better. It all depends on your situation, right? For the most part, I don't have any of those. I have one um, as, so I can test some things out or if there was a problem and this and that. But yeah. I definitely don't use it for my amplifiers or preamplifier. I go straight into the wall. And you don't use it for your washing machine or your refrigerator or anything <laughs> like that, right? Oh, my food is, tastes so much better, though, when I plug the, the refrigerator into it. <laughs> so then, yes, after the power conditioner, well, there's another power Audio file power cord, and then then I begin the audio system. You mentioned a uh, a custom audio file power cord earlier, and what what benefits does that bring? Oh gosh, that's probably a special show that I should not participate in. <laughs> Is this one of these directional molybdenum um, crystal whatever things that they that... certainly can be? Right. So yeah. you know what I look for in power cables, the ones I'm using, they're super flexible. And they're well-made, and they look good, honestly. And, and that if you step on them by accident, you're not going to break something, that they're shielded. They're, they're shielded not for the electromagnetic shielding, but for protection. Yeah, the, the ones I have, they just work. And it's like if I accidentally jostle it with an elbow, it's not going to bring my audio system down because some of them are so thick that they will take components off a rack. <laughs> and oh, for some okay. people, that's what they want. Totally cool. I just like flexible, they're made well, they work, and I kind of like them to look good, too, because I look at them a lot, and I'm not afraid to say that. I'm with you. As much as I dislike wires, if you got to have them and they got to be seen, then they got to look nice. Then you get to, for me, we'll say, you know, the DAC. Important piece. So you can have a single chassis DAC, or you can have a multi-chassis DAC. Some companies say DCS is a good example, who makes some of the best digital on Earth, splits out the DAC into there's a word clock, master clock, I should say. Then there's the digital to analog conversion. There's the upsampler. And then if you're spinning CDs, there's a spinning CD source. So you could you could get it into three, possibly four if you have CDs. So all of those components are in the sync. I have a DCS behind me that has all of them in one. You could break them out. You know, it's all kind of what you want to do. But if you're looking to acquire stuff, or for a different or possibly better sound, that's the route you could go. So you still don't have any audio yet. Well, the DAC is finally creating the analog audio, but it still hasn't gotten into anything that's turning that into... Oh, of course. I'm not, we're, we are far from listening to music. Uh, and, and I will speed this up because, you know, obviously people have stuff to do in their day. We only have a half hour for the show. So. Yeah, yeah. So let me speed this up. Of course, feeding the DAC, we can do Ethernet on this DAC, or we'll do USB. When you talk USB, a lot of people are using... USB regeneration devices and cleanup devices because the USB signal may not be clean. So the power coming for you from your computer, if it's powering the bus, the USB receiver chip in the DAC, then that power is probably not designed to power sensitive audio components. Some say it doesn't matter. Some say it does. So there's a device that'll sit in the middle there. USB cable to this device, then another USB cable into your DAC. So that's another component that a lot of people have gone on. Also, powering your computer, a lot of people have replaced all the power supplies that they can with linear supplies. 
Can you explain what that means, linear supplies? Yeah, yeah. So computers, most of them are built for low cost, and they'll have switching uh, power supplies, which are extremely noisy. So they'll replace the power supplies with linear supplies that are very, very quiet and well-built. So for me, this one is you're not shooting power supply noise back into the mains line that can get to the audio system. That's right. how I look at that one. Other people have different views, and if it helps or not, you know, I, that's for them to decide. But that's another thing, you know, part of this, and we don't have music yet. So then from the DAC, that's just standard RCA or balanced XLR cables. But, of course, all these cables, keep in mind, should be on cable risers, too. We, we wouldn't want cables to touch the uh, the carpet. There could be some static or something. There could be. And I like to poke fun at myself. I've used them before, too, and my friends have. So I'm I'm a card-carrying, knuckle-dragging audiophile. I'm not making fun of anybody except myself. Do you have special anti-static shoes when you're in your listening room? Oh, I should. I do not. Okay. <laughs> I'm curious about these cable risers. I worked in a studio one time where static electricity in like the dry winter months was a really serious issue. People would come into the studio and not be grounded, and so we were always like one static electricity arc from taking the radio station down. So isolating things from potential static situations seems like a reasonable thing to want to do. So what is it with these risers? What are they, like little trestles that carry the cables? Or Oh, there's all kinds of them. You know, some are cheap foam. Other are expensive exotic woods, you know. You'd want them to be as attractive as possible. Of, of course. If you're going to sit and look at them for hours, might as well be yeah. nice looking. Yeah. So, yeah, from the DAC to the preamp, those you know, that's kind of standard stuff. Nobody's doing anything crazy there. Um, you could put in a two-buffer stage somewhere in here, too, if you want your components to sound a little bit more tuby. So that could fit in there somewhere. They're kind of fun to use, kind of nice. Um, Musical Fidelity used to have one for their headphone systems. A nice two-buffer and sweeten the sound up. So that sort of runs the analog sound out of the DAC through some vacuum tubes before it goes into the amplifier to give it that sort of grotty, old-fashioned, slightly distorted sound. It's called warmth. Warmth. Yes, it's called warmth. Yes. Yes, 100%. And, you know, then from the amplifiers out to the speakers, and, of course, you could put on top of your speakers, some people have these, gosh, what are they called? Super sun, not supersonic. I can't think of the term, but they sit on top and they cover frequencies from, like, 50K to 200K, obviously, where you can't hear, but your bats in the neighborhood may be interested. Whatever, there's, and there's way more things you can do, too. The anti-vibration racks, of course. Well, see, I was just going to bring that up. Your, your gear is sitting on the floor there. It, it's not directly on the floor. It looks like there's maybe cork under it or something, but you don't have one of those special racks. How come? I do not. I place my stuff on – I just went and bought slabs 24 by 24 of granite that I thought looked cool, and it was stable, and it had airflow underneath and everything. Granite would stay cool, right? Yeah. Yes, it totally does. You know – the anti-vibration racks are so dang expensive. I mean, yeah. we're talking, you can spend $20,000 on a rack. Yeah. And yeah. even with industry accommodation, I can't do it. <laughs> industry accommodation? Is that a fancy word for discount? Yes, yes. Okay. If you're in the industry, you'll ask for an accommodation <laughs> price. And of course, yes. Yep. So I just, I got granite slabs, put my stuff on it, and I'm off and running. It works that's great. A, that's a good idea. If you can just move to the right just a second. So you've got... Your speaker's on stands there. What about the speaker stands? Oh, you could go sick on those, too. <laughs> um, I use the stands that were uh, made by the manufacturer for the speakers. Okay. 
Yeah, I've I've got some. I think I paid a hundred euros for the stands that I've got in the other room. They're just metal. They've got those little screw-in pointy things that you put as feet, so it doesn't touch too much of the ground, right? Yeah, I think that's the technical term, the screw-in pointy things. Pointy thing, yeah. Um, uh, actually, the speaker stands are quite important too, though, because when you think about vibration from the cabinet, you don't want that yeah. and it going out. So yeah. Speaker stands are very important. I I totally agree. Speaker stands, to me, are one of the probably underappreciated elements in audio. I've got a pair of isoacoustic speaker stands on my desk. And since the desk that I have is about a two-inch thick piece of oak, if I put the speakers on this oak, there would be some really, really heavy resonance. And the isoacoustic really isolates it with rubber at the bottom and the top of the legs in the stand. So it's kind of a double isolation. And the fact that there's air coming beneath the speaker means that the low frequencies get more room to, to spread rather than, you know, just bouncing off the wood. Yeah, those isoacoustic stands are like one of the best kept secrets in audio, at least for hi-fi. I have them. A lot of my friends have them. They're, they're awesome, and they're not expensive. I think I went down to Guitar Center and bought some for 100 bucks um, that would hold a lot of the different speakers I have, but you can get cheaper ones, more expensive ones. They are great. That becomes really important when you have a turntable because turntables will suck up all the vibration well, from from everything. So isolating the speakers is a big help. Yeah. When you worked in radio, didn't they have special isolated setups for your turntables? Oh, yeah. They were usually installed on top of a pretty heavy cabinet or other console furniture. And, and the, most of the time, this would be secured to the floor. But we'd also prevent any vibration uh, by throwing a big sandbag in the bottom of the cabinet to absorb the vibration. Yeah. It's really important to prevent any boominess from affecting uh, the phonograph cartridge. Yeah, it's important for radio. Well, yeah. Of course. So, Chris, you've you've outlined a very interesting chain of things that some of them are very normal, the the preamplifier, the amplifier, the speaker stands. Some are a bit excessive, the power treatment and the ground rod and, and all that sort of stuff. As we were saying earlier, you know, my audio system is pretty minimal. It's just, you know, my computer to my receiver to my speakers. How much of this – so I'm interested in photography and I recently bought two new cameras. And in the photography area, people talk about gear acquisition syndrome. This is the desire of a photographer to have a new camera every year. And, of course, in photography, it's a little bit different because for years we were getting better, you know, higher megapixels and, and things like that. But even if you keep your camera body, then you got to get lenses and, you know, you can buy all these things. How much of what you're talking about is gear acquisition syndrome? In other words, as a hobbyist who just wants to have more stuff because it's part of the hobby. Yeah, I'm into photography too, and I totally get the gear acquisition syndrome. I used to kind of be that way. I had to have, oh, this one's got 3.4 megapixels as opposed to three. Oh, I need it, you know? So I'm on a like a 5D Mark II or something. So I'm two generations old with you know cameras, and I and I don't care. When it comes to audio, it's a little bit different because at least I view it different for me and the people that I know. Because each one of these things you add that may make it more complex, you're going to make you're trying to make the ultimate outcome more enjoyable for yourself. It's not because some of these things you don't see, like my ground rod outside. I mean, I haven't seen it for eight years. It's, it's not like I buy something and I get to look at it and use it. It's, it's not decorated. It's not. It's This could make my experience, my enjoyment better versus, oh, I got a new camera that's got more buttons and it's the cool one. And 
I've been in both camps, and it's it's a little bit different for audio uh, versus photography, but there definitely is overlap. So one thing that I was thinking when we were planning this episode is, isn't every extra element you have in the chain another possibility for distorting the sound or degrading the sound? 100% yes. Because audiophiles like to say that every new thing they add makes it sound better. But I'm just thinking from a logical point of view, if you take a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, you don't necessarily notice it, but it is degraded. And every time you make a new copy of the copy, you will start to notice it. Now, obviously, everything that touches your power won't necessarily have an effect. But if anything else in your chain, in other words, if you're going from an amplifier to speakers, you've only got three elements. you got the amplifier, the cables, and the speakers. But if you're going from your bridge to your DAC to your preamp to your amp to your speakers, you've got cables in between all of those. And it just seems to me that you're just as likely to have a negative effect on your audio quality as a positive effect. It's very, very possible. Then it becomes, you know, kind of doing your research to figure out, is it worth it for me to get an external DAC that's going to be better than the DAC inside this integrated amp and then get an amp that's better than what's inside the integrated amp and connect those two, you know? So it's kind of, you can't just go out and willy nilly buy components and put them together as much as some people think you can. So yeah, you can definitely add one of these things and turn your sound much worse. So you're saying that with a, a more elaborate system like yours compared to mine, you have more of a possibility of things not necessarily being totally compatible? Oh yeah, definitely. Yes. Okay, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, I could go out and buy the world's greatest DAC everyone's raving about with internal volume control, connect it to my amplifiers, and it doesn't have the power to drive my amplifiers. Then I got to get something else. You know, it's not just it's a DAC, it's a DAC, it's a DAC all day long. No, there's certain things that matter. Is this because the industry isn't standardized among things like input and output? I wouldn't say it's not standardized. It's one of those things kind of like when there's a standard and Apple thinks it can do something better than the standard, it will go off and do it by itself. So in audio, there's the set of standards. And in hi-fi, there's a lot of you know really, really smart guys who may be involved in creating those standards who want to do things a little bit different. Like, you know, we want to tweak this piece a little bit better. It may work only with our equipment, but we don't care because the end product's going to be better. So it's it's kind of a lot of that. I've worked in places where we read about the cool new mic processor or the really cool effects rack or something, and then we bring it in and find it didn't work well, either because it caused hum or something or the, just the workflow became cumbersome. But for whatever reason, despite the manufacturer getting great reviews or recommendations, the product just wouldn't work out for us. And some manufacturers don't care if it doesn't work with other stuff. Some manufacturers will say, You'll void our warranty if you don't use our cables connected between our preamp and the power amp. Really? And I look at it like, okay, as long as I know that before going in, who cares? So in some ways, if someone's interested in setting up a new audio system, there is a logical reason to buy everything from one manufacturer? Sure. You're pretty much guaranteed everything's going to be designed, you know, in concert together. But for the most part, things will work together just fine. You know, I mean, if you're talking about the vast majority of people on Earth, <laughs> these things are all first world problems. One percent problems. Definitely, yes. So one thing you didn't mention, Chris, is any kind of room treatment. Yes. Next to the speakers could be just as critical as anything else. It's Your room's the biggest instrument, really, 
all the sound, I mean, take the best system in the world in the wrong room, it's going to be the worst system in the world. So, yes, I would love room treatment for my room. But when I look at it, I am just paralyzed because it's too complicated for me. <laughs> and it, the same way I look at a turntable, that's rocket science to me. So I look at room treatment, there's absorption, there's diffusion, there's all kinds of different geometric patterns and some mathematically based, some pulled out of some guy's head. And I go, oh my gosh, I don't know where to start. It's not cheap just to buy some and throw it on the wall. So I don't know what I'm doing. I, I wish yeah. there was some sort of, oh, here's your room, here's the treatment. But I think there's also, there's a science to it and there's an art. So I'm... I guess a little bit scared of it, but I would love to do it. It's like the feng shui of audio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm noticing you've got a door to your right there, so the door is going to be a different material than the wall, and so that's going to—you'd have to cover the door with something to balance it out. And yeah, that just seems crazy. Well, there's you know the first reflection, then different frequency absorptions, and so I, I would like to get a uh, microphone in here though to measure my room to see how it measures at the listening position. That's easy to do. I just haven't done it. All right. This has been really good. Now, I want you to just tell us if there's one thing that you could add to your audio chain today, regardless of price, what would it be? It would probably be some sort of balanced power transformer. So you're talking about a power cabinet that's run by a utility that you'd get your own coming in to take the whatever 5,000-volt power down to 120 or whatever. So I, I'm starting to research them. They look just like they can do incredible things. And so it would probably take 240 that's in my house. I would put it in the closet right outside my room and step the 240 down to, you know, 120. And it would be very clean and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wish I technically understood more of it. But from what I've read, maybe their marketing is great. But the balanced power transformer really seems to be a, a good thing. Would it, would it be absurd to suggest that maybe solar panels could be used to generate your own power? Oh, totally not absurd. I would love to do it. But the thing there is the conversion is noisy. Ah. See, that's Well, but, okay, so hold on. What if you have the solar energy that goes into a battery, like that big Tesla home battery, and then you do the, the, the you clean up the power after it comes out of the battery? Totally, totally. You, I would so love to do that, but I think – Cleaning it up after it came out of the battery would probably be really, really cool way to do it because then it's it's the same cleanup it's, that you would do from the power company. It's so. consistent coming out of the battery. It's kind of like coming out through a UPS or something. Yeah, yeah. It would be very cool. I'm with you. Get me totally okay. off the grid. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, this has been really enlightening. Thanks so much for sharing all this with us. I hope you enjoy your audio system today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. I'm going to put on a little Fleetwood Mac and kick back and listen. Chris Conacher runs the ComputerAudioFile.com website, which is a great place to self-induce gear acquisition syndrome. All right, let's get to our next tracks. Kirk, what will you be listening to? My next track is a box set of 12 CDs of Schubert Lieder by Matthias Goerner, a German singer. He recorded these 12 CDs in nine volumes, some of them are double CDs, from around 2004 to 2014, and it came out as a box set at the end of 2016. It's worth noting that Harmonia Mundi, the label that put this out, they have a habit of doing this. When they get to the end of a series, they release a box set at really a cheap price. It cost me 27 pounds for the 12 CDs. It's about $60 in the States, which is a lot more expensive, but that's 
the 27 pounds is about the cost of two CDs when it comes out. I'll put a link in the show notes to a review I wrote on my website. I've long been a fan of Schubert's Leader, and I think Matthias Gerner is the best baritone singing this music today. My favorite of all time is Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, who died a few years ago. And Gerner, who studied with Fischer-Dieskau, in my opinion, he is the ideal singer to follow in Fischer-Dieskau's footsteps. His approach to singing is similar, his phrasing, his emotion, his his changes in volume from quiet to loud and all that. He's an extraordinary singer. It's unfortunate that he's only recorded 12 CDs. Fischer-Dieskau recorded all of the songs for Male Voice on 21 CDs, and that box set is one of the extraordinary recordings of Leader in existence. There are also um, two other complete sets, which include the songs for female voice. One is on Hyperion Records and another on Naxos, and, and I link to them in my article. If you like Leader, you've got to check this set out. Now, I was just mentioning to Doug before the show that rather than listen to this on Apple Music, I bought the CDs because there is a difference in the way that I can approach the music if it's mine than if I'm just you know, choosing it like you choose a TV series on Netflix. In any case, that's a topic for another episode. So it's Schubert Leader by Matthias Gerner. Doug, what are you listening to? I don't remember if I've ever let on that one of my guilty pleasures is status quo. Great, straight-ahead British rock and roll, say what you will. I'm so into the quo, in fact, that I'm one of the few Americans who know that, one, real fans call them the quo, and two, you never call them status quo. They are properly status quo. Anyway, some live shows they did last year in London without founding member Rick Parfit, who was by then quite ill and actually died shortly after in December. Uh, these live tracks have come out just recently on an album called The Last Night of the Electrics, sort of a companion to some live acoustic albums they've been doing recently. I started paying attention to Status Quo when they opened Live Aid in 1985, and I think even by then they were sort of regarded as old guys. Their studio albums are somewhat repetitive, but during the 70s, they sold a lot of them, but they never really caught on here in the United States, and I don't I don't see how you can like someone like, say, Bob Seger, and not also like Status Quo. But anyway, so now I've got another good 90 minutes of live quo to enjoy on a summer night, right? That's what it's built for. Status Quo, The Last Night of the Electrics, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.